If you spend any time in New York City, you no doubt have heard some Yiddish spoken on the street, or at least in the bagel shop. You may have heard someone say, I'll take a sesame with a schmear, for instance. Hi, I'm George Bodarki. From schmear to mensch, on this week's show, we're schmoozing with a couple of people with a rich knowledge of Yiddish language and culture. First up, Kolya Borodulin. He teaches Yiddish online and in person for the Workman's Circle in Manhattan. He's with me now in the studio. Kolya, thanks so much for coming in. It's my pleasure, really. So what is the Workman's Circle? Uh, the Workman's Circle is a progressive Jewish organization uh, founded uh, in early 1900s wow. by uh, Jews, mostly immigrants from Eastern Europe. So it's really rooted in socialism, uh, ideas of uh, social justice and uh, as they say, a better on a schönere Welt for all, so a better and more beautiful world for everybody. Now you teach Yiddish for the Workmen's Circle. I do. How and long love... have you been doing that now? Oh, too long. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I actually started. Uh, I came here as a graduate student, Columbia University Yiddish program, 1992, and then 1993 already started to teach kids at the Workmen's Circle, and 94, also adults. Now, you taught yourself Yiddish. Do I have that right? Yes. Uh, and it's also, it was a coincidence, uh, thanks to Perestroika, Gorbachev, I don't know what. It was a pure coincidence. If somebody would tell me when I was 25 that I will be not only teaching, learning Yiddish, I would laugh at his or her face. With Perestroika, with this new renewal of uh, Jewish, and not only Jewish, ethnical culture in the former Soviet Union, I was approached by the dean of the newly established uh, teacher's college in Birabidjan, the capital city of still existing Jewish autonomous region where I grew up. So this dean offered me a job uh, to be a Yiddish language instructor, although I didn't know any Yiddish. But his argument was that, you know German and you know English, you are Jewish. Pick up a book and start teaching yourself, So, which I did. And How long uh, did it take you? It took me, I, I don't know, I studied in 1988, and then two months later, I had a chutzpah. This is a word which is ingrained in the American English. Uh, I had a chutzpah to teach both kids and adults. So basically, I was two steps ahead, but this also, this helped. And also, I was a language teacher. I knew how to teach uh, foreign language, which was by that time foreign to almost everybody who I taught. So why is the Yiddish language such an important part of the workman's circle? Um, it's, it's a history, it's our roots, it's our heritage, which is ingrained in the, the um, story, history, and I think future of this organization, which makes it unique. Uh, most of the Jews who founded uh, the Workman's Circle uh, were Yiddish speakers, and I think it's very important to continue to cherish uh, the values with which we started. What can you tell me about the history of the Yiddish language? Uh, <laughs> are you kidding? So it's, it's an amazing history. It's a, a history of 1,000-year young language uh, which survived so many persecutions, so many injustices, so many troubles, tzores, as they say in Yiddish, yet uh, survived, yet uh, 
thriving in a way of new era, new technology, which really gives it a new breath. Who is speaking Yiddish today, mostly? Mostly, of course, and it's not a secret. Uh, you know, it's Hasidic community. Now we know for the fact that thousands of them uh, are reading um, uh, Yiddish Forwards, which is a secular Yiddish newspaper, uh, Thousands, not hundreds, thousands, every single day. The Jewish forward, yeah. The Jewish, mm-hmm. the Jewish forward, the Yiddish forward mm-hmm. in particular, because there is an English forward and there is Yiddish forward. Okay. Uh, so this uh, new technology really gives access to anybody who wants to learn and to polish and to be around. So where in New York City can Yiddish be heard most I mean, uh, there are places, not too many. Uh, one of them is uh, our um, own workman circle, uh, which has, I think, uh, the largest uh, Yiddish language program uh, in the country. And I'm very proud of it because last semester we had, I mean, uh, uh, to me it's also, it's still it's so, uh, I, I can't believe we had over 280 students in our in-person and online classes, and we offer 25 classes. And like uh, average uh, number of students, uh, 10 students in class, I think it, it, it speaks for itself. And uh, with online learning, we were able to uh, invite into classroom, into live classroom. I mean, it's, this is what makes me like the almost... Uh, uh, <laughs> Uh, I'm I'm hooked. I'm changed to this uh, headset because uh, um, I teach myself an online class, and I supervise. I support uh, five more classes, and my regular um, way of teaching is I'm spilka, so I can't sit in one place. I'm running, jumping. So this changed me to. St- chair and uh, um, forces me to change uh, my methods of teaching, uh, which I'm very excited about because it gives you such a gateway through uh, new technology to bring an amazing, exciting um, pages, momentos from the past. So where do you start when you teach Yiddish? What are the fundamentals uh, we start from the beginning. Uh, we are all-inclusive. Uh, we invite uh, students from all ages. Our uh, like, uh, demographics, it's amazing. We have peer students who are 15 years old and 85 as they say in Yiddish. Uh, we also, a new initiative is that we started to teach dogs, which uh, uh, is really a very interesting, exciting way of attract more people to learn Yiddish. It takes place in Yeah, you had a Central class in Central Park, Central Yiddish Park, for dogs. Yes, uh, three, uh, this summer it's going to be a new in- installment, so we bring our Yiddishists, people bring dogs, and the professional instructor teach them commands in Yiddish. <laughs> Cool. Central Park, what can be better? What are among the commands in Yiddish that you could use on a dog? Anything, because it's, and it's also very um, uh, similar to uh, English. Zitz, see, stay, stand, and so, loif, run, and so on and so forth. So, but yeah. What are among the reasons people want to learn Yiddish these days? Many reasons. And I mean, especially when you have uh, now this opportunity to reach out to people from other continents, 
from the places where there is none a single Yiddish speaker, but you are, when you are bounded to your apartment because of uh, your handicapped or something, these uh, walls are now gone with uh, Yiddish online. And uh, having in one class students from, like I have in one class students from Australia, from Japan, from Mexico, from Peru, from United States, of course, Canada, all together, sitting, uh, communicating to one another, uh, exchanging, learning. I mean, this is, this is a dream which, which is coming true. Are people of non-Jewish heritage learning Yiddish? Yes, and how? One of my best Yiddish students, uh, and he he wants he wanted to take a Jewish name, so I give him a name, Yoina. Uh, he's uh, Irish. Uh, he loves Irish culture. He came to um, my class maybe eight nine years ago with his uh, Jewish girlfriend. Uh, Jewish girlfriend couldn't survive two classes. He's still hanging in, huh. and from the Olive base, the alphabet uh, from primer, which he started, he is now learning uh, uh, Yiddish literature in the regional. So it's it, it, it's really um, very rewarding. And uh, another thing about our uh, Yiddish language program is it's just kind of a year round. It's not only like two semesters, uh, fall and spring. It's also in the summer we have. Uh, um, Beautiful program called A Trip to Yiddishland. It's a very friendly, Hamish immersion into language uh, through language, literature, and art. So every day there are Yiddish classes. There is uh, a Yiddish theater workshop for beginners and advanced. There is Yiddish songs workshop. Uh, there are uh, meetings with, fr- and there is also a klezmer track so that uh, people who are interested in klezmer music come, learn how to play music, and at the same time study language. Do students in your classes come out speaking Yiddish fluently? Some of them do. Some of them do. It's really, this is what makes it uh, very exciting and rewarding. And it's also, we serve right now kind of a bridge um, to the summer programs. You know, there are many summer programs throughout the world. Yiddish summer program, the largest is now in Tel Aviv, for example. Very successful is in Vilna, Lithuania. There is the largest, the longest Yiddish program, six weeks in a row uh, in New York City uh, for 60-plus years every year. Uh, uh, Warsaw, uh, Brussels, Paris, and so on. So they go summertime, they can afford or they love to study, but they want to continue. Now they can and they do through our online programs. And uh, the staff who is teaching is so such, I mean, both uh, the staff who is teaching online and in person, incredible. Uh, there is a Sheva Zucker, the um, 
creator of the textbook, which is now used in almost all uh, American and Canadian universities. She's teaching both online and in person. Uh, there is Itzhak Niborsky, the most respectful Yiddish maven in the world, who is teaching, and people, teachers are coming to, uh, to, uh, to take his classes. Graduate students, postdoctoral students are coming to take these classes. So it's so inclusive and so exciting and so promising. I was going to ask the question, are there many Yiddish teachers in New York? Not so many, but there are. And also you see this way of bringing uh, uh, staff from around the world. We have in the last two semesters uh, uh, Yiddish language instructors from Paris, from Buenos Aires, from Israel, uh, from Canada, uh, and of course our own. Yes, there are. And there are they are very good teachers. A lot of Yiddish words have made it into everyday conversation for a lot of people here in New York. I schlepped yeah. over or to... schlepped around. <laughs> right, uh, you can even you do you make it like half uh, Yiddish, half English. So uh, enough already is definitely from Genukshoin, uh, uh, taken from Yiddish. Uh, and so on and so forth. Shmir, uh, Bagel, uh, Chutzpah already mentioned, and so on and so forth. It can go on and on and on. I had a neighbor that used to call me Bubala all Mm -hmm. the time. Is Mm -hmm. that Yiddish, Bubala? Yeah, and it's very affectionate. Baba is a grandmom, but it's when you you add this diminutive suffix, it makes it like a a nice little thing. Another is Chochka is also Chachka. It's also Yiddish. Or mensch. You're a mensch. Oh, yes. A beautiful word. You earlier referenced a resurgence, a renaissance, if you will, of the Yiddish language. Why are we hearing more about this? I've read a few articles that referenced a renaissance of the Yiddish language. Mm -hmm. I mean... uh... Uh, I'm not to judge, but I mean, my theory is that, I mean, uh, it's now the generation whose grandparents are going away, unfortunately, and uh, there is now more and more interest in the roots, because uh, um, Americans who are like four generations here, so they're starting to get that there is a piece missing. And Israel is, of course, very, very important, but there is also something else. There is something which is also uh, central, uh, which is essential, crucial for understanding and appreciation, uh, appreciating your identity. And this is uh, Yiddish language and culture, which is so unique, so beautiful, so um, suffering in many languages, uh, but uh, yet uh, so resilient. Can we do a little Yiddish 101? Can you teach me a little Yiddish somehow? Of course. I will teach you uh, the uh, parts of your face. You just uh, listen to me and do what I say. Okay. But first you want to listen, okay? Sure. Yeah, this is Stern. Stern. Das ist ein Oig. Oig. Recht Oig. Link Oig. Weiß ist Show. Weiß mir dein Stern. Show. Weiß mir dein Link Oig. Weiß mir dein Recht Oig. Nose. Moil. Moil. 
Kopp. Kopp. Ja? Herr. Kopp. Ja? Weist mir dein Stern. Weist mir dein Kopp. Weist mir dein Nos. Meul. Rechtoig. Linkoig. Axlen. Lomir singen alit. Let's sing a Yiddish song. Kopp. Axlen knion fis. Knion fis. Kopp. Axlen knion fis. Knion fis. Oigen. Euren nozun moil kop axlen kniun fis kniun fis. So you got ten words in two minutes. That was fantastic, and I feel like I'm taking that away. That's good. I heard, and you're right. You need to listen, right? So so important to listen. Absolutely, the most important thing. How do I say thank you? In Yiddish? Oh, it's also it's a beautiful question because Yiddish has three ways. It has much more, but just three ways. And it's also, I don't, there is no uh, correspondence in English. There is a shenem dank, a beautiful thank you, which you don't say in English, a beautiful thank you. But in Yiddish, it's almost a custom. It's not a dank, a dank is just thank you. But you always say, a shenem dank, which is a beautiful thank you, or a groisen dank, which is a huge thank you, or a hartzeken dank, from the bottom of my heart. Well, a groisen dank. Wow. Did I get that right? Yeah, you that right. You need to study Yiddish. Thank you, you so much. Thank, thank you, thank you so, so much. Kolya Borodulin is director of Yiddish programming for the Workmen's Circle in Manhattan. More info at circle.org. This is Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. New York City's theatrical community has a rich and storied past. But ask most people what they know about Yiddish theater, and chances are they know only one show with a Yiddish connection. Fiddler on the Roof has been hugely popular for years, but the story of Yiddish theater spans well beyond the mainstream stage. With me now in the studio is Edna Nishon. She's professor of theater and drama at the Jewish Theological Seminary. Edna is also the editor and author of several articles and books, including New York's Yiddish Theater, From the Bowery to Broadway. Edna, thanks so much for coming in. Oh, you're very welcome. So when does the story of Yiddish theater in New York City begin? It begins in 1882, uh, six years after Yiddish theater comes into being in Romania. So that's where it originated, in Romania? It started in a, in a, a so-called Café Chantant, a, 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 a wine garden in Yasi, Romania, where the two performers were singing. Uh, there were folk singers uh, performing in various places quite for quite a few years by then. And a young writer called Abraham Goldfaden came to town. Uh, he really wanted to establish a Yiddish newspaper. It didn't work out. And uh, joined forces with these two performers and provided them with, um, I'd call it a short a script, almost a commedia dell'arte kind thing. But it connected the various songs and created something with continuity and some sort of a basic plot. It was immensely successful. He became the first producer, writer, director, you name it, of the Yiddish Theater, created his own company. And uh, within less than a year, there, there was a woman performing alongside with him. And it caught like wildfire. 
six years later with the beginning of mass immigration to America, mm-hmm. which starts in the early 1880s, uh, it comes to New York. First performance is a very minor affair, uh, but it's remembered for two reasons. First of all, because it was the first. They did a Goldfaden operetta. There was very uh, little dramatic material written at the time. And secondly, because it involved Boris Tomaszewski, then a 16-year-old, 15, 16-year-old um, uh, youth who would become uh, the biggest commercial star of the Yiddish theater in years to come. He really was renowned all over. So that's the beginning, a very modest beginning. So where was Yiddish theater centered in New York City? It was centered right near where immigrant Jews lived, which is in Lower East Side. At first, it's in the Bowery because they don't have their own specially built theaters. They move into theaters, many of them uh, theaters that served various other ethnicities before them, for instance, the Germans. By 1900, there's three theaters uh, where Yiddish shows are given regularly. These are very large houses. These are not tiny little off-off-Broadway kind spaces. And um, it was estimated in 1900 when they were between 500 and 600,000 Jews in New York, they sold well over a million tickets a year. Wow, wow. If you take off, you know, the old, the disabled, the babies, etc., it's an unusual number. This was the major entertainment of the Lower East Side. I was going to ask, so who was the audience for a Yiddish theater? Was it the wealthy or was it the masses? Everybody. Everybody. And another interesting thing is that um, even though many of the most of the people have had a somewhat traditional uh, lifestyle. There were performances on Friday and Saturday. There was no strong rabbinate to oppose it. In fact, those were the most popular nights. So new shows always opened on Friday and Saturday and Sunday. Uh, all the shows were given during the week and were very often sold as benefits to various organizations. But everybody went. The rich, the poor, the religious, the, the single, the married, you name it, they went. How different were the shows? Well, they all had a very strong musical element. Uh, you have to understand that when, at the very beginning, the only trade performers Jews had were singers and musicians because there was a whole uh, cantorial um, tradition amongst Jews. And, and young younger boys who had good voices would train with a rabbi, with, I'm sorry, with a cantor, and, and the voices were good and trained. So music was really in the DNA of the Yiddish theater. Music mattered a very, very great deal. But, of course, in... in uh, The 1890s, especially, we begin to have some serious drama. Uh, Not all actors were such great singers. Mm -hmm. And uh, some the intelligentsia craved something of more substance. And that brings into the uh, picture a um, Russian-born writer called Jacob Gordon, who transforms the culture of the uh, Yiddish theater. How so? Well... He uh, he begins to write for Jacob P. Adler, 
who was the great, great dramatic actor uh, of the Yiddish stage. And uh, his disadvantage was that he did not have a great voice. Mm-hmm. So he was a great admirer of Russian culture, Russian uh, theater, Russian uh, drama, and was was hungry for good material. He runs into Gordon, who had just arrived here, doesn't know Yiddish all that well, and but has an awful lot of kids. I think he had nine or ten kids to support. It is looking for work. Uh, writing for the Russian journals in New York is not uh, very profitable, and so he is offered by Adler to write a play. You could make a lot more money doing that. His first play, Siberia, uh, produced in 1891, is basically uh, fails. The audience doesn't know what to make of it. It's a serious Russian-like play. But his second play, The Jewish King Lear, is a phenomenal success. It establishes um, Jacob P. Adler as a mega star in terms of dramatic literature and creates a new culture because Gordon insists that actors do not ad-lib, that they stay faithful to the original script, that they don't do any shticks. He writes his plays in a language that is a normative Yiddish rather than this highfalutin Germanized language uh, that was used before. And he really brings a measure of seriousness and and, uh, the whole world of ideas, especially, by the way, women's rights, uh, to the Yiddish stage. Yeah, I was going to ask the question, how much was the politics of the day intertwined with Yiddish theater? Women's rights, much more advanced than than what you would have um, as part of the regular conversation in New York. Very, very advanced. The Lower East Side by nature was pro-labor because most people were workers. So went without saying that you went with the union people, not with the bosses. There was great interest in in uh, in what was happening in Europe, especially from a Jewish perspective. So let's say the, the Dreyfus trial and the uh, the blood the, the Bailey's blood libel uh, uh, trial uh, were dramatized, and uh, we have to remember we're talking about. A period when there's no television, when there's no uh, radio, when there's nothing. I mean, you have to go out, and the theater offered some docudramas about these events. Then major American um, uh, sensational news, like the Johnson Flood, uh, is reproduced in Yiddish on stage. But the the ongoing um, stories of American politics a lot less so. That happens years later in the nineteen late nineteen twenties, especially the thirties, when you have um, a very strong political theater. When did Yiddish theater start to diminish in New York City, and why? It begins to go down with the end uh, of mass immigration, which comes to a nearly full halt in 1924 uh, when Congress passes a bill. Uh, it still seems very uh, like a very bright uh, presence and future in the late 1920s, but then gradually it, it, it dwindles down. Now, what happens cannot only be assessed in terms of numbers. What happens is also that the audience gets older, and the actor get older. Mm-hmm. 
So uh, in a survey in the 1930s of the actors who were working in the field, most of them are already middle-aged, and much of the audience is so. Now, that doesn't mean they go less, but the expectations begin to shift. Uh, you come for a feel-good show. You don't come to be challenged as much. Um, the younger people come for a special show. Yes, for, for something like Yosha Kalb, they would go to the Yiddish theater, but they do not necessarily go there routinely. So the numbers are still strong, but the, the energy begins to change. Writers get older. Writers write less and less for the stage. Serious writers, I mean. It becomes more and more operettas. And uh, the, the serious decline, of course, is felt after the Second World War, when a whole new generation um, comes of age. And what you see then is an interesting development that uh, you could term uh, Yinglish, much like Spanglish today. Uh -huh. So people who can no longer or who no longer read a Yiddish newspaper or book but grew up with the language at home and understand some of it but not very intricate language um, are very comfortable with this style where where... It's a kind of mishmash of Yiddish, but with a lot of American Americanisms and American English language words thrown in. And that is also, of course, typical of Catskill humor, this, this kind of mixed language. The Borscht Belt. The Borscht Belt uses it a lot. So um, that is a kind of interim, I would say, linguistic phase in between uh, nearer extinction and and full blossoming yeah edna thank you so much thank you very much edna nishon is professor of theater and drama at the jewish theological seminary she's also the editor and author of several articles and books including new york's yiddish theater from the bowery to broadway and that's it for this week's cityscape i'm george bodarki my thanks to producer caroline rotante and thank you so much for listening mm -hmm.